You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we are going to cover the life and times of Abel Tasman, one of the greatest Dutch explorers in history. Tasman is famed for being the first European to reach the island of Tasmania off the southern coast of Australia, as well as New Zealand. His two voyages of discovery in the 1640s would be some of the most important and illuminating of the era. So, a few notes to start today's episode. First, I have placed a map on our website, explorerspodcast.com, so you can see the route of Tasman's two expeditions. I recommend checking that out. Second, we are, for the first time, dealing with the Dutch language in this episode, and that means I'm going to have some very interesting pronunciations. I have enlisted a native of the Netherlands to help me with pronouncing some of the names and places involved in these next couple of episodes, but I can promise you my articulation of some of these words is far from elegant. But I will try, and I hope that gets me some points. Special thanks to friend of the podcast, Maureen, and his wonderful mother, who helped with the Dutch pronunciations. Third, the source material of our podcast is partially sketchy. Like any good explorer, Tasman kept a detailed journal and log of his voyages. However, only the logs of his first expedition have survived, meaning we know a lot about the first voyage, but little about the second. With that in mind, for today's episode, we'll get Tasman going on his first voyage. However, before we do that, we will take a look into European exploration of the Far East, including the rise of the Dutch as a commercial power during the 17th century. This will mean some discussion about the famed Dutch East India Company. So, before we talk about Abel Tasman, let's take a look at the exploration of the Far East by Europeans in the 1500s and into the 1600s. This will include some discussion about the political scene in Europe at the time. We will start in the Netherlands at the end of the 1500s. This region was called the Low Country, or Holland. The people are called the Dutch. Today, the Netherlands rests between Germany and Belgium, their northern coast chock full of ports on the North Sea. The Netherlands were controlled by the Spanish Habsburg Empire in the 1500s until a republic was established in 1581, the people throwing off Spanish rule, at least in the north. The wars in the Netherlands would go on for nearly a century, the lines often drawn between Catholic and Protestant. The Protestant Republic was in the north end of the region, controlling the coast. As the Dutch Republic emerged, they would soon begin to develop their own empire, and in the process become one of the greatest commercial nations in the world. Catholic Spain would control much of Europe, but it was the Dutch that emerged as the economic power brokers for the rest of the continent. In the 1500s, the Portuguese were the primary European power in the Far East. The Spanish had the Philippines, but almost everything else was dominated by the Portuguese, including the Spice Islands. But things were changing by the end of the 16th century, and the Portuguese grip on Asian trade was slipping. In the late 1500s, various Dutch expeditions headed to Asia, mainly to try and get involved in the highly profitable spice trade. 
However, many of these expeditions would end up competing against each other, and thus the Dutch government would back the creation of a single company to streamline expansion in the region. This company would be the legendary Verenigte Oostendusche Compagnie, the VOC. In English, this translates into the United East Indian Company and was commonly known as the Dutch East India Company, or the VOC for short. The VOC was a revolutionary organization. It was the first company to issue stock, and many people consider it the world's first multinational corporation. It had quasi-governmental powers, including the ability to wage war, imprison people, execute convicts, negotiate treaties, make its own money, and establish colonies. The VOC took advantage of chaos in the region after Portugal was absorbed into the Spanish Empire in the 1580s. They would establish an outpost and colony in Batavia, modern-day Jakarta, and then target and take control of isolated and weakened Portuguese outposts and forts, including Malacca in 1641. Also, they would become the only European power in Japan after the Portuguese were expelled in 1639, due to their inability to rein in the Catholic missionaries, who had converted thousands of Japanese to the Christian faith. And thus, it wouldn't take long for the Dutch to become the most important commercial entity in the Far East. The Portuguese were fading, the English just getting started as a naval power, and the Spanish kept their focus on the Philippines. Now, let us be clear about one thing. Despite establishing some colonies in the Far East, such as Batavia, Dutch interest in the region was mostly commercial. This was about money and the Dutch were very good at this thing. They captured cities and outposts, struck deals to get officially sanctioned agents put in place at other locations, and they explored, looking for new opportunities. Sir Walter Raleigh claimed the Dutch had 20,000 ships under sail, despite not having any trees to make those ships. These were privateers, traders, merchants, and explorers, and they searched out the world, looking for new opportunities. They went looking for the legendary Northwest Passage and the Northeast Passage, Their ships ventured to the Americas, Asia, and Africa. In the book, Abel Janssen Tasman, His Life and Voyages, author James Backhouse Walker had this nice summary of the time and place, saying, In the 17th century, it was the Dutch who were the sailors and the merchants of the world and the masters of the sea. Not London, but Amsterdam, was the great emporium for the products of the East and West, the center of the world's trade, and the richest city on the globe. End quote. Walker wrote that back in the late 1800s, but it was very accurate, and I think it sets the stage for our story. And that brings us to the subject of our podcast, Abel Tasman. Abel Janssen Tasman was born around 1603 in Luchagast, a small village in the province of Ronigen in the north of the Netherlands. We know almost nothing about Tasman's younger years, but he appears to have come from humble origins. But we do know that he could read and write, so he would have had some education. He married Klaasie Hendricks, and the two had a daughter, Klaasien, who would be Tasman's only child. Tasman's wife would die at a young age, and he would remarry to 21-year-old Yonichi Charles in 1632. The announcement of their engagement is the oldest source we have available mentioning Tasman, which identifies him as a 28-year-old seafarer living in Amsterdam. Around this same time, Tasman would make his first voyage to the Far East. He was now part of the Dutch East India Company, the VOC, and while we don't know much about his early years with the VOC, by his fast rise in the ranks of the company, it would appear he was a very good mariner. He began as a simple sailor and became a ship's master within two years. Historically, a ship's master is an officer who is responsible for the navigation of a sailing vessel. Anyhow, in the Far East, Tasman was part of the growing and lucrative trading network in the area, 
including the spice trade. It was all about acquiring nutmeg, cloves, cinnamon, ginger, pepper, and more from the Moluccas, the Banda Islands, Maluku, Sumatra, Borneo, and many other locations. The great prize were cloves only found in the Moluccas. I want to note that it wasn't just about spices. There was silk, hardwoods, gems, precious metals, porcelain, and much more. Dutch ships sailed to China, India, Japan, Sri Lanka, Indochina, and a hundred other places. And at the same time, local merchants came to the Dutch trading posts to swap their wares for European goods. Now, I want to point out that what the Dutch were doing wasn't necessarily sailing to a specific location and then heading back to Europe. Often it was taking smaller ships and bringing goods from one location in the Far East to a major Dutch trading post, where in turn it would be traded for other items or sent back to Europe. In the end, it means the Dutch were going anywhere they could make a profit. As for Tasman, he was known to have sailed to Sarum Island, which is the largest of the Maluku Islands. There he was almost killed in an encounter with local natives. By 1636, Tasman was commanding a fleet of small trading vessels, so the guy was doing well. The next year, he would return to the Netherlands and sign on with the Dutch East India Company for 10 more years. He was based in Batavia, now the capital of the Dutch East Indies, and would bring his wife with him. In 1639, Tasman would be named second-in-command on a new venture, this a voyage of discovery. A quick note here. The Dutch, just like everyone else, were always looking for new trading opportunities. To the south, their ships had reached the northern and western shores of Australia, as well as the island of New Guinea. Regarding Australia, not much was known about these lands, other than their existence. And as I noted, the Dutch had contact with Japan. However, not much was known about the waters to the east of the Japanese islands. Japanese sources told tales of a pair of islands to the east, populated by friendly and sophisticated peoples, and they were rich in gold and silver. The Dutch called these islands Rica de Oro, or rich in gold, and Rica de Plata, meaning rich in silver. These were the exact kind of places the Dutch were looking for. They envisioned it would be a new Peru, a nearly endless fountain of riches. So, for this expedition, there would be two ships and 90 men. The expedition's commander was Matthias Quast. Tasman was second in command, and he captained one of the two ships, the Racht. Another note here. The ships used for voyages of exploration were often not the best. These journeys were speculative and dangerous. The VOC was not interested in risking the best ships on such endeavors. The good ships were used to carry the best cargo, such as spices. The little fleet departed from Batavia on June 2nd, 1639. They would head to the Philippines, and from there, on July 10th, strike out east into the ocean. For more than three months, the two ships crisscrossed the Pacific, searching for the legendary islands of gold and silver. They reached as far north as Hokkaido, the northernmost point of Japan. And to the east, the ships nearly reached what is now the International Dateline, that's 3,700 miles from the Philippines, or 6,000 kilometers. In all of this, the fleet would come across some islands, including the archipelago of the Bonin Islands, southeast of Japan. These islands include the famed Iwo Jima, site of one of World War II's fiercest battles. But most of these places were uninhabited and offered no trade opportunities. In the end, the expedition was never going to be a success, because the islands of gold and silver did not exist. Quast abandoned his search on October 25th and headed west. The ship would reach Formosa, aka Taiwan, on November 24th. By this time, scurvy and other illnesses had set in, and nearly half the fleet's men were dead. 
And so the expedition to find the islands of gold and silver was a failure, but it did raise the profile of Abolt Hausman. He had gotten his ship home and proven his mettle in perilous conditions. After this expedition, Tasman would continue sailing the waters of the Far East for the VOC. This included trips to Japan and hunting down rogue Portuguese traders. By the way, trade with Japan was extremely profitable. The Dutch endured strict conditions in Japan to maintain their trading post because they made so much money from these deals. And thus they were extremely protective of their trade access. After Japan, Tasman would go to Palembang in South Sumatra to broaden trade opportunities and improve diplomatic relations with the local leaders. So Abel Tasman was doing all right for himself. He was a successful and trusted mariner with a lot of experience in the region. And with that, I want to introduce into our story a new character, Anthony Van Diemen, the Governor General of the Dutch East Indies. Van Diemen was a driving force in exploration and expansion of Dutch power in the Far East. Ever since getting a job in 1632, Van Diemen had wanted to explore the lands to the south. For years, he had been trying to raise funds and find ships for such an enterprise. Now, a couple of quick background notes about Dutch exploration in the south of the Far East. First, Dutch navigator Willem Janssen became the first European to reach Australia in 1606. Over the next few decades, ships from various nations came into contact with long stretches of the western, northern, and southern coasts of Australia and local sources spoke of a great land to the south, but no one knew if these often rugged coastlines were part of a greater continent. Second, this mythical southern continent was called Terra Australis, and it had been speculated about for thousands of years. Many people had thought that South America would connect with Terra Australis, but Dutch explorers had rounded Cape Horn in the early 1600s and proved they were not joined. Third, in 1611, the Dutch discovered an important sailing route across the Indian Ocean. Let me explain this. Usually when ships rounded the southern tip of Africa, they would then sail up the coast over to Madagascar and then continue on to the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and India. These waters were often dangerous and filled with pirates. This new route took a ship directly across the Indian Ocean to Batavia. It cut off long and dangerous stretches of a journey. A ship could go 3,000 miles, or 4,800 kilometers, in about a month, and the voyage was across open waters with no pirates, no dead zones, no rocks, and no shoals. Thus, it was faster and safer than going along the coast of continental Asia. And so, in the early 1640s, Governor Van Diemen finally began to put together his expedition of exploration to the south. To lead the enterprise, he settled on Abel Tasman. The man had over a decade of service with the VOC, distinguished himself during that time, and proven his loyalty. The plan was to take two ships and head west from Batavia to the island of Mauritius, there they would resupply and catch the westerly winds east and south. There were several goals here. First, they were to find out about the land south of Java, Timor, and New Guinea. Was this Terra Australis, or was it something totally different? Tasman was to chart everything and take possession of any lands discovered. Second, Tasman was to explore the seas to the east, meaning the waters that stretched, roughly, between Australia and South America. The Dutch had dreams of plundering Peru or setting up their own trading route between the Americas and the Far East, or both. Third, regarding indigenous people, Tasman was to gain their friendship and get as much information from them as possible. One specific thing he was instructed to do was ask them about gold, and if they had some, to try and downplay its importance. That way they could trade for it at a low rate of exchange. Tasman's expedition was, almost exclusively, a commercial voyage, the goal to make money. 
Short of charting the geography of the oceans, plus astronomical and meteorological observations, there was nothing scientific demanded of Tasman. For the voyage, Tasman had two ships, the 200-ton Heimskark, with 60 men. She was commanded by Ejit Cherksen, who was also the expedition's second-in-command. The other vessel was the Zehan. She was smaller and had a crew of 50. Her captain was Garrett Janssen. The expedition's pilot was Franz Vischer, who was very important to the expedition. Tasman would command the fleet while aboard the Heimskark. The expedition would carry food and provisions for a year. The final orders to Tasman would include the following, quote, We command you to the blessing of the Almighty, whom we pray to endue you with manly courage for the accomplishment of the proposed discoveries, and to bring you back to safety, to the increase of his glory, the reputation of the fatherland, the service of the company, and your own immortal honor, end quote. The date was August 13, 1642. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Abel Tasman would lead his two ships from Batavia on August 14, 1642. But things did not go well right from the start. The Zehan ran aground the first day. Luckily, it would get afloat without any notable damage. After that, it was west for the small fleet, towards the island of Mauritius, about 3,300 miles away, or 5,300 kilometers. Mauritius is about 600 miles, or 900 kilometers, east of Madagascar. The voyage to Mauritius was uneventful. Tasman kept a daily log, although he usually didn't have much to say at this point in the voyage. He wrote down the time of day he recorded things, usually noon, and took note of the longitude, latitude, wind conditions, weather, and distance sailed. The ships would reach Mauritius on September 5th. The island had been uninhabited when Portuguese mariners reached it in the early 1500s. The Dutch had set up a colony in 1638 to harvest timber and plant tobacco and sugarcane. As a note, the island was abandoned by the Dutch after about 20 years due to the poor return on investment. But at this time, there was a settlement, and Tasman went about taking on food, timber, livestock, and water, and repairing his ships. Both the Heimskark and the Zehan were in bad shape. The rigging needed to be replaced, and the ships were rotting and leaking, especially the Zehan. Remember, due to the precarious nature of the expedition, the Dutch bosses had not given Tasman their best ships. Tasman would remain on Mauritius for about a month, getting his ships ready for their departure. The plan was to follow in the footsteps of Peter Nautz, who had mapped about 1,500 kilometers of the southern Australian coast in the 1520s. Tasman would depart on October 8th, his ships now shifting course to the southwest. 
they would use the strong winds, called the Roaring Forties, to push east as fast as possible. And the ships did move quickly, sailing across the Indian Ocean, covering roughly 3,300 miles, or 5,300 kilometers, in less than a month. It was then that they saw seaweed, birds, and even a seal. They were all signs of land. Tasman shortened the sails and ordered a man to be constantly on the lookout for land, shoals, and other dangers. There was a cash and alcohol reward for the man who sighted land first. The Dutch were, in reality, about 700 miles, or 1,200 kilometers, south of the Australian coast. A few days later, the ships would encounter snow and hail, the temperatures dropping. Fog, rain, and gales were now a common companion to the fleet. The ship's pilot, Franz Vischer, recommended that the fleet head east along the 44th parallel, and then eventually move north, towards the Solomon Islands, whose location, directly east of New Guinea, was known to the Dutch. Tasman, by the way, didn't just rule the fleet as an absolute dictator. When important decisions like this were to be made, a council was called and the options discussed. This council consisted of key members of the fleet, including Tasman, his captains, his master pilot, and a handful of others. I find this fascinating because we have opinions of various people being recorded in the logbook. It's different than what we see on other expeditions, where a captain's word is often absolute. I suspect this feature, a ruling council as opposed to just one man, is because of the commercial nature of the endeavor, which avoids letting a single person risk the profits of the entire fleet. Anyhow, on November 17th, the ships would pass the farthest east point that Peter Nouts had reached almost 15 years earlier. The next day, the men would sight whales. And then, on November 24th, at about 4 p.m., the fleet would sight land for the first time in more than 5,000 miles, or 8,000 kilometers. It was the first recorded sighting by Europeans of what we now call Tasmania. The ships were about 10 miles off the western coast of Tasmania, north of Macquarie Harbor. They could see several high mountains from their ships. Tasman would name his discovery Van Diemen's Land, after Anthony Van Diemen, the Governor General of the Dutch East Indies and the expedition's primary backer. A quick note, Van Diemen's Land would ultimately have its name changed to Tasmania in honor of our Dutch explorer. As for this podcast, I will mostly use Tasmania in our narrative. Tasman and his ships would skirt along the southern edge of Tasmania, all the while waiting for good weather and a safe place to go ashore. Easterly winds were an issue, the ships being pushed out to sea, even so far that the fleet would lose sight of land on occasion. On December 1st, the ships tried to make a landing at what is now called Adventure Bay, which is off the southern tip of Tasmania, but winds would suddenly sweep the ships east. And then, the following day, the ships sailed up the eastern coast of Tasmania and anchored at what is now Frederick Hendricks Bay. There, two small boats went ashore under the command of Franz Fischer, the pilot. They would return with a pile of edible greens and report seeing some geese and ducks. Water, which Tasman needed, was not readily available. Also, Fischer reported seeing signs of humans, including fire pits and notches in trees, saying he and his men had, quote, heard certain human sounds and also sounds nearly resembling the music of a trumpet or a small gong not far from them, though they had seen no one, end quote. The next day, December 3rd, Tasman tried again to land a boat at a different part of the bay, but the surf was too high and they could not make it through. And thus the ship's carpenter swam ashore and planted the Dutch flag, laying claim to the land for the Netherlands. Two days later, after cruising up the coast of Tasmania for a ways, the ships would lose sight of land as the easterly winds carried them out to sea. Tasman conferred with his council of advisors and elected to continue east as well as north toward the Solomons. The lands Tasman had discovered were rugged and showed no sign of wealthy or advanced people. 
It did, however, demonstrate that these lands were separate from any southern continent. By the way, in pushing east at this time, Tasman wasn't able to figure out that he had been coasting along a large island. For decades, mapmakers would include Tasmania as part of a greater Australian landmass. So Tasman and his ships tried to head in a northeasterly direction, but the winds kept them going directly east. It was a rough voyage, with Tasman saying that his compass was the only thing that kept them alive. And then, on December 13, 1642, land was sighted to the east. This was the northwest coast of the South Island in New Zealand. If you don't know New Zealand's geography, it is dominated by two large islands, South Island and North Island, a narrow passage, about 10 miles wide, or 18 kilometers, separating the two. Tasman and his crew were the first Europeans to reach these lands. The voyage from Tasmania to New Zealand had been about 2,500 miles, or 4,000 kilometers. Tasman would name this new discovery Statenland in honor of the Dutch Parliament called the States General. He thought he had found the western side of the legendary Terra Australis, which stretched across the Pacific to the southern tip of South America, writing, quote, We believe that this is the mainland coast of the unknown Southland. End quote. The two ships would sail north for five days, reaching the northernmost point of the South Island at a location called Golden Bay. Along the way, the ship took note of the native peoples, the Maori. Tasman described their clothing and physical appearance, as well as their canoes, some of which were catamarans. The canoes, called waka, ranged in size, but some could be as long as 130 feet or 40 meters and carry as many as 80 paddlers. The war canoes were often elaborately carved and painted. The Dutch tried to entice the natives to come aboard their ships, showing them things such as knives and white linen. The Maori would get close to the ships, a stone's throw, according to Tasman, but they declined to come aboard. Still, they mostly seemed friendly, so the Dutch kept trying to engage with them. Now, Tasman needed to obtain food and water for his ships. He said the language of the Maori was unlike anything they knew, so communication was nearly impossible. And then, on December 19th, the ships would move closer to the shore looking for a place to potentially land. The Zahan put a boat in the water with the ship's quartermaster and six seamen on board. There were numerous Maori boats in the area, and the two would suddenly make for the Dutch boat. Before anyone could react... The Maori rammed the Dutch boat, and fighting broke out. The Dutch quartermaster, Cornelius Joop, would take a violent blow to the neck. In the scuffle, three of Zehan's seamen were killed, beaten with clubs and paddles. Another would die from his injuries. The quartermaster and two other seamen jumped into the water and swam for their ships. The Maori would take the body of the dead seamen and head back to shore. Muskets fired at them in their wake, but no one being hit. The Zehan's boat would be retrieved, and from the ship, the Dutch could see the Maori natives piling into their canoes. Twenty-two boats would pull off from shore, heading for Tasman's ships. The Dutch would fire off several shots in an attempt to drive away the attackers, but the Maori continued to advance. It wasn't until a musketeer hit a man standing at the front of one of the canoes before the Maori broke off their advance and retreated. Tasman would call this spot Murderer's Bay. By the way, archaeological research has shown that the Dutch were likely trying to land at a major agricultural area, which the Maori may have been trying to protect. But we don't know for sure why they attacked. The lack of communication was likely a major factor. Tasman wisely didn't try to get revenge against the Maori and instead departed the area. His ships would head north and sight what today we call Cook Strait, which divides the North and South Islands. However, Tasman thought the narrow strait was just a curve in the coastline and he did not investigate it. Instead, he continued north along the western coast of the North Island. Reading Tasman's logs, he does not say exactly when and where his men went ashore for the first time in New Zealand, 
but the two ships were always searching for food and water. The fleet would continue up the western coast of New Zealand, the explorers noting the native people, the landscape, and their location. Eventually, they reached the tip of the North Island. Tasman now had a decision to make. Does he go east into the ocean, or head down the other side of the North Island? Does he head back to Batavia, perhaps exploring the area to the north? There were a handful of reports of islands in this region. Perhaps they would be of interest. And thus, on January 6, 1643, Tasman and his council of advisors would gather and discuss their options. They would select the third option, the decision to sail northeast, an area mostly unexplored by Europeans. And that, my friends, is where we are going to leave things for today. To recap, Dutch mariner Abel Tasman had sailed from Batavia, modern-day Jakarta, in Indonesia, and been the first European to discover the island of Tasmania off the southern coast of Australia. He had then headed west, becoming the first European to reach New Zealand. An encounter with the Maori had left four of Tasman's crew dead, and the little fleet had pushed north, reaching the northernmost tip of New Zealand. At this point, Tasman didn't know New Zealand was an island. He speculated that he had been on the western shore of a great landmass, perhaps the legendary Terra Australis. The expedition was, however, done with New Zealand, and set sail into the waters of the South Pacific, a region mostly unknown to the Western world. Next time, we will conclude the story of Tasman's first voyage of discovery. We will then recount Tasman's second voyage. We'll then wrap up the series by detailing the rest of Tasman's life, plus his legacy. Before we finish today, I want to give a shout-out to all of those who support the show. This includes some of our patrons, whose financial assistance makes this program possible. These people include Philip, Peter, George, Fleur, Elizabeth, Eileen, Eamon, Dan, Craig, Christopher, Catherine, Cameron, Chris, Benjamin, Andrew, Adam, Rudy, Robert, Jesse, Eric, and Donnell. Thanks to all of you who help out the show. It is much appreciated. If you are interested in helping out the show financially, please go to explorerspodcast.com to find out more information. Also, if you want to help and just can't afford to do so at this time, no problem. I'd appreciate it if you could go on to whatever app you listen to your podcasts, such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and leave the show a nice rating and review, if they allow you to do so. Or take a moment to share the show on your social pages, such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you communicate with your friends and family. A nice word from you is the greatest advertisement we can have, so thank you. So that is it for today. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please join us next time as we wrap up the series on Dutch explorer Abel Tasman. Thank you for listening. Take care. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find out more about this curated network featuring some of the leading storytellers and thought leaders in audio entertainment, including I Know What Scares You and Infamous America. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.